ladies and gentlemen, welcome to our second episode of Guide to Existence. You know what I should have called it? Guide to the Galaxy. That would have been much better. But I think that was taken. But um, all right. Tonight, we're going to discuss an interesting mitzvah. It's not so easy to find mitzvahs in the book of Genesis because there aren't that many, as we mentioned last week, that the book of Genesis is devoted more towards the stories of our history and the character traits by which to live by. But we happen to have a mitzvah in this week's Parsha, to some degree, kind of a mitzvah. It's actually a bracha. This week's Parsha, there is a bracha to make a blessing on a... Does anyone know what you have to make a blessing on that we learned in this week's Parsha, the Parsha of Noah? Noah? Oh, that's true. We do make a blessing on rain. That is true. But it's not from this week's Parsha. What is from this week's Parsha? Associated with rain. Even has the word rain in it. Rainbow. She always gets it right. Rainbow. So there is a, there is a mitzvah to make a blessing on uh, the, a rainbow. We're going to discuss that interesting mitzvah, which is a very paradoxical mitzvah, actually. Um, I'll just share with you the blessing. The blessing is, Blessed are you, Hashem, who remembers the bris, the covenant, the promise, and is faithful in his bris, in his covenant, and he fulfills his words. So we'll try to understand that blessing and learn some interesting things about it as the night progresses. Okay, let's begin. We're all familiar with the story. This is the one story in the Torah that everybody knows. Noah, there's going to be a flood. He goes on the ark with the animals and he gathers them in twosies, twosies. And uh, then there's a floody, floody. And Everything dies, and Noah and his family survives, and they repopulate the earth, and they go out and they spread out, and they become the different nations of the world. But what I'm sure nobody here knows, unless you heard my class last year, what's the Kabbalistic meaning behind this story? And it is quite profound. Okay, so if you guys are ready, we're going to jump in. But I want to start with a question from the Torah. The beginning of the Parsha says as follows. Ela told us Noah, these are the generations of Noah, Noah ish tzaddik. Noah was a tzaddik. Noah was a righteous man. Tamim haya, he was pure, bedorosav, in his generation. As Elohim is halach Noah, God walked with Noah. Now I want to ask you guys what this, these three words mean. Noah was a tzaddik, a righteous person, in his generation. Ladies and gentlemen, or ladies, talk it out. What do you guys think that means? Wow. So says Steph, it's all relative. Affirmative action. Noah, he's not really a tzaddik. But in his generation, he is. So we're going to take him. He's the best we got, right? Is that essentially what you're saying? Excellent. And you know who says that stuff? The sages of the Talmud, quoted by Rashi. So answer number one is Noah. Is Noah a tzaddik? Steph, according to your answer, is Noah a tzaddik? Kind of, right? It's all relative. 
he's kind of a tzaddik. He's a tzaddik now. And that is uh, precisely what Rashi says. Rashi says, there are those that learn this as actually as an insult in the negative. That Noah, he's not really a tzaddik. But in his generation, compared to everyone else, he was. Had he, however, been born in the generation of Avraham, of Abraham's generation, which was 10 generations later, so then he wouldn't have been considered anything. Not only would he not have been a tzaddik, he wouldn't have been nothing. He wouldn't have been considered anything. That is very intense, right? Why is Rashi saying that? Say he wouldn't have been the bomb, he wouldn't have been the best, but to say he would have been nothing? What else could, what else could Rashi have said? If it was you or I writing it. He would have still existed. He might have still been good, a good guy, right? So that's question number one. Okay, what's another way to learn it? Mike, I can't believe you're here. Good to see you, Mike. Let me know if you want to get together. I could come tomorrow. Wow. Still here to learn. Mike is tired and going through a lot right now, and he's here. Unbelievable. Mike, it should be a schuss. Can we learn in the in the merit that uh, you should have healing in your family? Okay, so we learn for Rafu Shlema and for Rachme Shemayim for um, Vladimir. Hebrew name. Uh, you know Hebrew name? Zev, Ben. Mother's name? Mother's name. Your grandmother. Hasa? Okay. Rafua Hanefesh Rafusa Guf. Um so we were just talking about Noah and um Steph pointed out the problem. There's a problem with the text. It says Noah was a tzaddik in his generation. And I asked everyone what that means, and Steph said it means in his generation it was a tzaddik, but that's just because everyone else was really bad. But had he been in a better generation, he wouldn't have been considered a tzaddik. And I said, how could you say that about Noah? Steph, get out of here. You're a heretic. But it happens to be that that's what Rashi says. Okay? Now, what's another way you could learn that same three words? Noah was a tzaddik in his generation. Anyone? Anyone at all? Is anyone thinking? Okay, but now we got to change your mindset. Think differently. Open up your mind. In his generation, he's a tzaddik. You, you, we did that one already. We did that one. That's the one we did. How else, what else could it mean if I say, if I say, eh, he can only lift 100 pounds, right? 
I say he can he can only lift 100 pounds, it means he's not so great. He can only lift 100 pounds, right? But if I say he weighs 50 pounds and he can lift 100 pounds, what does that mean? That's that's amazing that he can lift, right? Depends how who you are, right? So if I say, yeah, Jaylene. Ah, ah, excellent. He stood out. In his generation, he was a tzaddik. And he was in a bad generation. So what would he, what would he have been had he been in a good generation? You see, the discussion here is how much does your environment affect you? I said it wrong. and It wasn't affirmative action. This one's affirmative action. Steph's answer is that Noah was a tzaddik in his generation, meaning that what that's called is a, a curve. You ever have a teacher that graded the class on a curve? That means you got the best grade. You got a 50 on the test, but it was the best grade in the class. So you got a hundred. You got an A. All right. Even though you got 50, you get an A in the class because you were the best in the class. That's answer number one. Is that Noah's not so great, but compared to everyone else, he's considered a tzaddik, right? Answer number two is affirmative action. What affirmative action states is this kid coming from a really hard family, really bad situation, facing all sorts of prejudices and uh, systemic discriminations. And he got a B plus in high school. But look where he was coming from. Had he been born into a two-family, two-parent home and a uh, middle-class income, he would have been an A-plus plus student. You get it? Okay, I hope I didn't say any racial prejudices there, any offended anyone. I was just utilizing the uh, the concept of uh, affirmative action and a cur and a curve. Okay, is it fair? Now, okay, we're not going to get into this now, but not everyone likes. Some are for it, some are against it. But you can definitely hear the side to say that you know when a person has more challenges. Does someone like to defend affirmative action for me? Affirmative action is the idea that a person who comes from a worse situation can get into a college or get a job even if they don't really deserve it because they have more challenges in their life. And they had to work harder to get where they got. Definitely. And you know, you know who judges us based on affirmative action? God. That's right. God says, I don't care how well you do in life. I care how hard you try. And there's only one person that knows your real challenges. He knows exactly what your talents are, exactly what your challenges are. And he knows that you can try your hardest to overcome. You won't always succeed, but you don't get rewarded for the successes. You get rewarded for the effort. That's affirmative action. And that's, that's answer number two. So Rashi says the second way to learn it is actually a compliment towards Noah, that Noah was a tzaddik even in his generation with all the challenges and all the influences, the negative influences, he was still a tzaddik, all the more so had he been born in a different generation. Which one do you guys like better? Was Noah really not so great just in his generation compared to everyone else he was, or was Noah even greater in spite of his generation?
So excellent. Jaylene likes the positive one. Anyone anyone disagree? So stay stay patient. Stay patient. We're going to go back. We're going to talk about Avraham and Lot at the end of this conversation. Okay? I see where you're going with it. So just stay 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 put. Stay All right. So Jaylene, you're not alone. Do you know who else says that you should look at the positive? Judaism, the Talmud. We always have to judge everyone favorably. So if you have a choice of the Torah, first of all, what does the Torah call Noah? Righteous. So who are we to come and say, eh, didn't really mean it. We have two ways to learn it. So who are we to come and say, eh, didn't really mean it. And not only did it not really mean it, but how could we go so far to say, had Noah been born in the generation of Avram, he would have been Zero. Nothing. How could you say that? It's hard to say, though. And when we have an option of seeing the good, why should we look at it from the negative? And not only that, but the next words are, God walked with Noah. They don't say that about you and me, right? So he's got to be a little bit good. But Rashi says, had he been born in Avram's generation, he would have been considered nothing. So I want to try to give you a very creative and novel explanation for that statement of the sages. Okay, let's get started. We're going to go deep into some Jewish mysticism. Okay, let us begin. <sighs> All right. Why a flood? All right, does anyone know why? There was a flood. Why was that generation punished by a flood? You know, the flood story appears in many, many different cultures throughout the world. What? You wanted to wipe them out, but why a flood? Why not an earthquake? Bad behavior. Okay. Water, ooh, water is purifying. That's interesting. There are definitely those that say that. And we go in a mikvah. A mikvah is a place of purification. Excellent. Hot water. But so, some say that the water was like a mikvah to purify the earth. Excellent, Steph. Good, good one. Okay. But again, specifically, you can purify things with fire also, you know. You can kosher stuff with fire. So, and the truth is that it was, it was fire and water. It was boiling water. But why water? What does water symbolize in Judaism? So I want to share with you uh, a couple of foundational ideas. And um, stop me if you have any questions along the way, if they're on subject. Um, is anyone familiar with the concept of karma? What is karma? Well, we're not, this is not a class on Hinduism. So uh, suffice it to say, you can Google it later. Karma is the idea that what goes around comes around. Right? Does anyone know how to say that in Judaism? Do we believe in karma? Excellent. Tatiana, with a knockout 
punch, measure for measure. Does anyone know how to say that in Hebrew? Mida keneged mida. Mida keneged mina means measure for measure. Measure opposite measure. And what that essentially means is what, what you put out is what you get. That Hashem responds to us according to what we put out. And the reason for that is very simple. Because the whole purpose of the events in our life is to teach us. Every event in our life, the Baal Shem Tov says, every experience that happens to you in your life is God talking to you. Every conversation you overhear, every time you you uh, your car breaks down, you can't find your keys, you get locked out of the house, you misdial the phone number, a leaf falls in front of you when you're walking down the street. Every single experience you go through is God talking to you. The problem is that we don't always know how to decipher those messages. And sometimes it's not like a strong message. Sometimes it's just God saying, hello, I love you. Welcome to the world, you know. But other times it's like, wake up. And those are the big times when you're like, oh my gosh, what is God trying to tell me here? And those are the wake up calls. And when those big things happen, it's typically we don't know how to decipher the messages so much. but because of the idea of Mita connected Mita, we can understand that when something happens to us, especially a bad thing or a good thing, it's often in relation, direct correlation to something that we can internalize about ourselves based on what we've done, where our shortcomings are. So if, I'll give you a very simple one. If you speak badly about your friend, Lashon Hara, which is not allowed in Judaism, and then you take a sip of coffee and you burn your tongue, so you can very easily say, ah, now I know why that happened. Must be because I spoke Lashon Hara. And it's really up to you to determine, to decipher these messages. Hashem's speaking to you, but it's up to you to get it, right? Many people can say, eh, whatever, not, not put two and two together. But if you take the message and you take it to heart, you say, I got to really be more careful about that. That hurt my tongue. I don't want that to happen again. No, on the contrary, that hurt my tongue. I must be causing other people pain with my tongue. I don't want to cause other people pain like I just myself experienced. I better be more careful with my words. Got the idea? Stub your toe. Gosh, I shouldn't have been sticking my toe in my brother's face. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what you could do with your toe. But there's it's really it's the, it's up to you. Just like we say, the Talmud says that dreams go according to the interpretation. So too experiences like this. When you have a negative experience, it's up to you to interpret it because we don't have prophecy anymore. But if you find a meaningful interpretation, so then that is Hashem speaking to you. Okay, so that's Mita Kenegin Mita. What happens to us, what goes around comes around. So what's the Mita Kenegin Mita of a flood? What does water represent? So in Kabbalah, there are two primary energies. You've heard me talk about this before. What are the two primary energies in Kabbalah? The yin and yang of Judaism, to quote another Eastern religion. Taoism. What? And kindness. In Hebrew, chesed and gevura. Chesed means kindness. Gevura means strength. Okay? And uh, just give me a second while I welcome in a new guest. Nate, are you with us? 
Oh my gosh! All the way from where? Colorado, Miami. Oh, on. Welcome. So good to see you. Well, I don't see you. Can I see you for a second? <laughs> you see me. I don't see you. <laughs> Whoa! Where's the? Where's the beard? I see. It's 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 kind of, it's kind of there. I see a little a little stubble. How's Denver? Only all right. Did you meet my friend, Rabbi? Did you meet my friend? Yeah. He's a good guy. There in New York. Amazing. Amazing. Unbelievable. Okay, Nate, you ready for some deep stuff? You're coming right in the middle. I'm going to catch you up, though, quickly, okay? Are you ready? Okay, Nate, concept of karma. Excellent. So in Judaism, we believe in the same idea. It's called mita keneged mita, measure for measure. You speak Hebrew. Mita keneged mita. What you put out, you get back. So the next question we ask is, okay, that was our first uh, Hindu reference for tonight. Now we're doing a Taoist reference is yin and yang. Are you familiar with yin and yang? Oh, excellent. Two different energies. There's, there's everything is made up of different of the, the the energy of masculine energy and feminine energy. That's the concept of yin and yang. So we have that in Kabbalah. It's called Chesed and Gevura. Chesed is kindness. Gevura is strength. And these are the two energies by which every interaction, every experience, everything in our life is made up of a balance of these two different things, these two different elements. And every yin has in it a bit of yang. And so too with Chesed and Gevura, the kindness has a little bit of strength, the strength is a little bit of kindness, it's all about a cosmic balance, okay? So now my question for you guys, who, whoever has not come to my Kabbalah politics class, okay? Which is masculine and which is feminine? We have Chesed, kindness, Gevura, strength. Which is masculine, which is feminine? You heard me say it, you're not allowed to answer. Yes, Steph. How do you know I reversed it if you didn't hear my class? <laughs> okay, so Steph wants to assert that, as everybody does, that kindness is feminine and strength is masculine. And everyone I ask that question to says the same thing. Why? Not just gender roles. What? <laughs> hey, don't don't presuppose my gender roles, Jalen. But uh, you are correct. Men are typically, and please, guys, this is going out on the web. I could get blasted for this for saying this. That men are physically stronger than women. You can't be careful. Don't go saying this outside. You're going to get beaten up by a strong person. Um, men are typically stronger than women physically, physically. And of course, that's not true by very strong women are much strong. Like there are plenty of bodybuilder women who could beat me up. No problem. I'm not a good example. But the strongest woman and the strongest man 
the man will be stronger. Right. And that's why it's a big challenge right now in, in sports, professional sports. What do you do with transgender women? Right. But again, we're not getting political. That's for a different conversation. But again, so, um, so men are typically physically stronger and women are typically physically softer and prone towards kindness, the maternal instinct. So that is why everybody asks the question who says that answer, and that answer is wrong. And I want to explain why it's wrong. And you should know that when you, I, I love Kabbalah because it challenges your assumptions about everything. Everything that you think, the way the world works, the way the world works, the way things are, is almost always wrong, according to the deeper perspective of Kabbalah. And, and what's so awesome about it is I can learn this stuff with people who are of all sorts of different backgrounds. And, you know, I've, I, had, I had someone come up to me one time who was a uh, gender studies major. And she said, you know, like, I do not, I'm not interested in learning about Judaism because, you know, because of the patriarchal, uh, misogynistic gender roles, etc., and I said to her, well, have you ever learned Kabbalah? She said, no. She said, I, she said, but, you know, I'd be interested in checking out. She says, what does Judaism say about non-binomial gender? Right? What, is, what does Judaism say about, you know, someone who doesn't fit into gender roles? I said, well, according to Judaism, everything in this world fits into gender roles. In this world. But what doesn't fit into gender roles in Judaism? God. God is beyond the world of duality. And that's why the Torah begins, last week's Torah portion begins with, what's the first letter of the Torah? You would think it would be an Aleph. It's a base. Voracious. You would expect it to start with Aleph. Aleph is the, the, the number one. Base is the number two. But the Torah begins with the letter base because the Torah begins from the world of duality, from Big Bang, from creation. The beginning of creation is the beginning of a world of duality, a world of yin and yang, of chesed and gevura, of multiplicity. But God is the world of oneness, neither male or female. So you'll ask me, so why does the Torah refer to God in the masculine? Well, the truth is that we refer to God in the masculine and the feminine, depending on the relationship, depending on the way that he's interacting. There's an, a masculine way of interacting and a feminine way of interacting, but it has nothing to do with God himself. I said himself. I lied. Nothing to do with God itself, themselves. God does not have a gender. Got it? If you're interested in learning more about this, so you can check out my article. Uh, this is just one take on it in uh, on h.com, A Father's Love, which talks a little bit about why we refer to God in the masculine sometimes. But uh, anyway, uh, questions on what we just said. Nate, you had a question? Wow. That's awesome. that is an absolute in this world in this world that's that's amazing all right so the only absolute in this world is duality and and that's basically true one thing you're guaranteed is if you have an opinion someone else disagrees <laughs> so they say that um but by jews it's even worse you know the story of the jew who was um who was rescued from an island he had been shipwrecked on an island for for 
many, many years. And they arrived on the island that rescued him finally. And he had built this whole palace, all these different structures. And he gave him a tour of the island. And he said, you know, this is my house. And over here is my synagogue. And they said, what's that building over there? He said, oh, that's the synagogue I don't pray in. <laughs> so they say two Jews, three opinions. Um, and that's another. Uh, no, it's not. Um, all right. <laughs> all right, let's keep going. So the reality is that the Western perspective always looks at the external. I hope you guys are enjoying this because I am. The, the Western perspective is always to look at things from the surface level. The Jewish perspective is to always look deeper at the internal, the internal workings of the thing. And oftentimes, Kabbalah explains, the thing externally is the opposite of what it is internally. That we externalize in order to balance out what we are on the inside. So... I'll just give you an example of the difference between the Jewish perspective and the Western perspective. The Western world refers to this as a face. What does a face mean? What does the word face mean in English coming from the Latin? Facade. Face, false, surface, surface. The face means an external illusion, a mask that you show the world. How do you say face in Hebrew? I think we need you for this one, Nate. Panim. What does panim mean? It means internal. Because your face can be an external surface. It can be a mask that you show the world. Or a face can be the window to the soul. It can reveal who you are on the inside. So in English, your face is the external in Torah. In Hebrew, your face is your internal because it's a two completely different perspectives. And that's really the dichotomy. That's the battle between Jacob and Esau, as we'll learn about in a few weeks. The Jewish forefather, Jacob, and, and Esau, who's the forefather of the Western perspective, which is seeing the world from the what, it is, what its function is externally or what its inner purpose is internally. Okay, so externally it's true, men are stronger. But Kabbalah, when we talk about energies of masculine feminine, we're really talking about directions. When we talk about kindness, we're talking about a direction. What direction does kindness move? Towards or away from yourself? Away from yourself. Kindness is the expansion beyond to experience another, to make room for another, to give to another, to care about another, to notice another. That's kindness in Judaism. What's the definition of strength, on the other hand? What's the Jewish definition of strength? So, so how, does, how does the Talmud measure strength? Who's a strong person? Someone who controls themselves. Self-control. Who's a strong person? So strength from a Jewish perspective is not how much weight I can lift or how much I can beat you up. It's how much I can control my own self. So strength is the opposite. It's internal direction. It's self-connection. It's uh, in contraction. So these are the two different energies. Which is masculine and which is feminine? 
So when we oftentimes when we refer to masculine and feminine, we're really referring to the procreative process. So in procreation, what is the job in the reproductive process? What is the job of the male? How? Masking just scientifically yet. Don't let's not get too spiritual yet. They carry the seed. What do they do with the seed? They give it. They give it. It's a whole conversation. The birds and the bees will have it when you guys get older. So the male has a seed and passes it on to the female. The male's role in the procreative process is very, very minimal. All he does is he plants a seed. He's the giver. What does the female do? Receives the seed, contains it within herself, nourishes it, nurtures it, and gives life. So the process of procreation, according to this, is that the male is the primary giver, the female is the receiver. So in Kabbalah, when we talk about male and female energy, we're talking about giving versus receiving. And masculine is giving, receive, and uh, and feminine. Masculine is giving and feminine is receiving. So when we refer to God in the masculine, we're talking about God as the giver who's above us, who's giving life to the world. We talk about God in the feminine, what's called the Shekhinah, the divine presence. We're talking about God who's the receiver, who is within the world. You get that? Okay, so now moving right along. So in the elements, these two energies are expressed through the elements, earth, air, fire, water. Which one represents kindness and which one represents strength? Anyone? Strength is fire. Exactly. And? Of course. Water. Fire and water. Water flows. Water gives life. Water is sustaining. Fire consumes, internalizes, condenses things. So... In, on Shabbos, I have a custom. If you come to my house for Shabbos, you'll notice some interesting Hasidic customs, which are based on Kabbalah, that um, I always put a drop of water in the wine. And that's a Kabbalistic custom. And the reason for that is because wine represents strength. It's very strong. It's a hard, star- strong substance. Water represents kindness. You only want to put a little bit of kindness in the strength. There's another custom that basically every Jew has, which is also based on Kabbalah as well as other sources, which is to dip the challah in salt. Why? Because challah represents kindness, sustaining. Salt represents strength, right? What does salt do when you put something in salt? When you salt something, it preserves it. It preserves the borders and boundaries. Salt represents strength. The, the same paradigm, salt and sugar. Right? What's the difference in salt and sugar? Put something in salt, it preserves it. What happens when you put something in sugar? Dissolves it. Right? Sugar is kindness. It dissolves borders and boundaries. Salt, strength, preserves borders and boundaries. So, now, by the way, my class on the Kabbalah of politics comes straight out of this. Parsha, this week's Torah portion, and you can already begin to see a little bit of where it's coming from. So there are personality types that believe that are 
kindness, chesed personality types. Chesed personality types believe in eliminating borders and boundaries. Opening up, everything should be free. Right? What do you call that politically? Communism. Right? The lib liberal personality type is a chesed personality type. They believe in opening up borders and boundaries, free everything, free love, free health care, free education, let everyone in, and um, get rid of all social conventions and all, um, and all things that keep us apart. We should all become one people. That is chesed. On the other hand, you have a gavura personality type, which is close the borders and the boundaries, keep everything the way it is. That's a conservative personality type, right? Don't give anything to anyone for free. You got to earn it, right? They're completely different spiritual roots. We'll see which is correct shortly. Republicans and Democrats, right? The Republicans are Gavura personality types. Conservatives are Gavura personality types. Uh, liberals are Chesed personality types. So now, what was the generation of the flood, of Noah's flood, guilty of? So the Torah tells us they had two primary issues, really, really three. But the two primary that we'll focus on now, so we don't get too complicated, is they were guilty first and foremost of, as it says in the Torah, all flesh had, um, all flesh had basically become corrupted. What does that mean? So the Torah, the Talmud explains sexual immorality. The generation of Noah was into free love. Everything goes, and the the. Uh, other sources, what's mine is yours, what's yours is mine. Lack of proper boundaries. And in fact, uh, the second thing that they were guilty of was stealing. What's mine is yours, what's yours is mine. So when it comes to the sexual immorality part, it means people with other people's spouses, people with, uh, without regard to gender, and also people with animals. And it says that even animals started mating with other types of animals. So now let's put these two things together. What does stealing and sexual immorality have in common? What's the root of both of those things? Okay, desire, impatience. Uh, <laughs> Well, you own yourself, but yes, you're right. You're right. Some sort of lack of, some sort of disregard for what, though? So it is a disregard for something. This, a corrupt form of chairing. Excellent. So it's a lack of proper boundaries. Right, because everything is free, everything's okay, everything's allowed. There is no order, there are no rules and regulations, chaos to some degree. And what is what is really the root of that? What is the root of 
too much love, no private property, the hippie movement, communism. So there's an amazing teaching from the Baal Shem Tov, founder of the Hasidic movement. Baal Shem Tov says as follows. It says in the Torah, in Leviticus, it says a man who sleeps with his sister is a chesed, an act of kindness. And the commentaries are very bothered by that because it's one of the things that a person is, uh, their soul gets cut off, right? It's, uh, it's, it's a serious prohibition in the Torah. So why does the Torah call it an act of kindness? So some explain that, it, that word, the word chesed is also related to a word that means like a disgrace. But the Baal Shem Tov says as follows. It is an act of kindness, says the Baal Shem Tov. What ki- kind of kindness? Too much kindness. The Baal Shem Tov says that sexual immorality, the root is kindness, but an overabundance of kindness. Right? You can be, a, like we said, chesed is expansion of self, recognition of other. Too much kindness means complete overflooding all borders and all boundaries so the 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 root of stealing and sexual morality the root of communism and socialism and hippieism is lack of boundaries kindness too much chesed an overflow of chesed so if chesed corresponds with water a generation which has improper chesed too much chesed the response is what Overflood of kindness, too much water, and that's the mita connected mita. That's the that's the measure for measure of why that generation was destroyed by a flood. You guys with me so far? Now let's jump ahead ten generations later. Ten generations later, Abraham is born, and Abraham becomes a philosopher, and he starts traveling the world in search of answers to try to understand the meaning of life and who created this world. And he discovers God. And we'll talk about that journey in subsequent weeks. But at some point, Abraham has an issue with another society at the time. As Julia mentioned earlier, the society of Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah was a, was a society that was extremely powerful civilization. But they had an issue. Does anyone know what the issue was in Sodom? Does anyone know what their belief system was all about? So let me tell you a little bit of what the Talmud says about Sodom. Sodom had a rule that anyone caught giving charity to the poor would be burned at the stake. You were not permitted to to do charity. They also had a rule that if a person came to town, if a visitor came to town, so you weren't allowed to host guests in your house. But they did have one exception, is if, is if you wanted to stay in someone's house, so they had the, all their beds were a set size. And if you didn't fit the bed, if you were too short for the bed, they would stretch you. And if you were too long for the bed, they would cut your feet off. So they also um, had another rule that any visitors in the town would be sodomized, right? So this all sounds pretty crazy, right? But, but what's at the root of it? 
What, how could there be a society that doesn't believe in kindness? How could any society function like that? What, what, what's their value? What's their value system based on? Ah, self-sufficiency. And if you understand it from that perspective, and the Torah requires, when, when we learn Talmud, one of the goals of Talmud learning is to see the world in values. To learn to understand values. Because when you have two ideas in the Talmud, two rabbis debating over a certain concept, you always have to ask yourself, what's at the root of the debate? And at the root of any debate is always a value. Now, if you go through life seeing things at face value, so you're going to make a lot of enemies and you're going to dislike a lot of people. Because there's a lot of people out there that have different opinions. And you're going to get annoyed at all the different opinions out there. But when you learn to see the world from value perspective, then you realize, you know what? You also are a really good person. You also care about the world and the environment and helping others. But you have a different value system. Your values are based on a different worldview, a different approach. And if I can respect that, if I can recognize that you have your own value system, then I don't have to – we don't have to fight about the details. We can go up a little bit higher and discuss the ideas behind the details. It's very hard for people to do nowadays. People uh, get triggered when you disagree with them. But the goal of Talmud learning is to learn to put your ego aside and discuss things from an intellectual perspective so we can come to truth. And in order to come to truth, we need both perspectives. You need to, we need the liberal personality and the conservative personality to come together to get out of their ego, to get out of their box, to climb up to the realm of ideas and values, and then to discuss the best way to solve problems based on values. Okay, so this, the society of Sodom, the value was individuality. And that's why I don't want to give charity. Because when I give charity, I'm taking away your opportunity to earn your self-sufficiency, to earn your independence, to earn your reward. And now when we understand it from this perspective, we can say, wait a minute, now, now I get it. You know, I grew up really liberal. I thought conservatives were crazy, but now I can begin to understand, oh, you know what? They believe in the value of independence, of individuality. If I give stuff away for free, you're never going to earn it and you're never going to appreciate it as if you had really earned it yourself. And when I look at the liberal personality, I grew up really conservative. I don't get this free stuff. Oh, they want to share the wealth because they want to help each other get there because you're not alone. We're in this together. You see, both values have their own base. They're both coming from a, a very relevant worldview. Torah says the goal is balance. The goal is chesed and gevorah coming together, this, the combination of masculine and feminine. That's why, according to Judaism, every home ideally should be made with a male and a female because you need both perspectives. Not to say that all women are feminine and all men are masculine. There are different balances of these energies in each and every one of us. But the goal is the opposites should come together because through those opposites, you're able to create the ultimate picture of harmony, which requires both perspectives. Okay? You want to hear more on that? Listen to the politics, uh, Kabbalah politics class. All right. So... Abraham fights against Sodom. He spends his whole life fighting Sodom. You know how Sodom is destroyed in the end? Well, a, what? Ah, so a generation with too much independence. So what energy are they imbalanced in? Vura, strength. Strength corresponds to fire. Sodom is destroyed in a fire fire and brimstorm 
fire from fireballs from heaven. So, and and according to uh, according to our understanding, the Dead Sea is located in the the remains of the civilization of Sodom, which is now nothing but sulfur and salt, right? Which is which is strength. So Abraham spends his life fighting against Sodom. How does he do it? A generation, a gener yes, Sodom, um, Lot's wife is turned into a pillar of salt. Exactly, exactly, exactly. So Abraham's fights against Gevura because his whole life he is transcending borders and boundaries. Avram is called Ha'ivri. What does Ivri mean in Russian? Ivri. An Ivri in Russian is a Jew. Right? Comes from Hebrew. Ivriski. An Ivri is a Jew because it comes from the word Ivri, which means to cross over. Avraham crossed over. His whole life was crossing over from one country to another, passing through borders and boundaries, transcending. His tent was open on all four sides. He spent his whole life doing kindness. Whoever's hungry, come and eat. Avraham was fighting against the, the energy and the worldview of Sodom by spreading kindness and compassion in the world. So that's the job. Our job is to seek balance. And sometimes the righteous people of a generation have to go to the other extreme in order to help balance out the generation. So in a generation like Avraham's, the proper thing to do is to do kindness. In a generation like Noah, in Noah's generation, what should Noah be doing to help bring balance to society? A generation with too much kindness. What should Noah be focusing on? Building borders and boundaries. Strength. Gevura. So what's Noah commanded to do for 120 years? Noah is commanded to do something. Very public. Build an ark. What is an ark? What is ark in Hebrew? You know say ark in Hebrew? Teva. What's a teva? Literally, a box. Noah is commanded to build a teva. Well, that teva, that's okay. Could also maybe relate it. But Noah is commanded to build a very big box. And that's exactly what he does. To show the generation, I want you to pay attention. That we need to create more borders. We need to have better, healthier boundaries. Otherwise, a flood is coming. But, my friends, what does Noah do inside that ark during the year of the flood? Ah, yeah. Okay, he structures the ark. He fits everything in. But what's he doing? What's he busy with 24-7? The Talmud says Noah was incredibly busy. He didn't sleep for that entire year in the ark. What was he doing? Nope, wasn't praying. Nope, wasn't repenting. Wasn't drinking. He was really busy. Why was he so busy? Yeah. 
The cages were already built. The cages were built. Now they're inside the ark. What's he got to do now with those cages? Zookeeper! Noah is a zookeeper. He's running 24-7 to feed the animals. To do kindness. Acts of kindness. The message of the ark. Just listen, Steph, one minute. We're about to finish. The message is do kindness within a box. Don't do too much kindness. Do kindness within proper, while respecting proper boundaries. That's the message that God is telling Noah in the ark. So why would Noah be considered nothing had he been born in Avram's generation? Steph, this is for you. Because in his generation, the proper way to combat the energy was by building a box. Had he been born in Avraham's generation, building boxes was no longer appropriate. His life's work would have been considered nothing. Because it's all about your environment. Figuring out how to find balance within yourself and within your own environment. That is the message that the Torah is telling us. And may we all be blessed to find balance within ourselves and in the world. And last point, last but not least, Steph, you can go, is there the bracha we talked about at the beginning, that there is a, so the Torah says, a sign, God says to Noah, that I will never bring a flood upon the earth again is the sign of the rainbow. So what does the rainbow represent? According to Jewish law, you are not supposed to look at a rainbow. You look at it briefly and to say the blessing, but you're not supposed to stare, and you're not supposed to tell other people about it because it represents a curse. The Torah says that when we see a rainbow, it's a sign that the world really should be destroyed again, or a certain part of the world should be destroyed again, but that God promised never to bring a flood on the entire world again. So the flood is a sign of a curse. A rainbow is a sign of a curse. Why a rainbow? A rainbow is a beautiful thing, but it's also quite paradoxical because the Talmud says elsewhere that a rainbow, and actually based on the, on the, on the Torah itself, on Tanakh, the rainbow also represents the, the, the presence of God, the divine presence. So it says elsewhere, you shouldn't stare at a rainbow because it's like staring at God's presence. So what is it, a curse or God's presence? And the answer is, is it's both. Because what is a rainbow? What causes a rainbow? You see, white light, you look at it, you don't see any parts. When you shine that white light through a prism, comes out all the colors of the rainbow. That white light represents God itself. The essence of God, which is complete oneness, complete unity. No parts, no gender. When that white light comes into a physical world, it breaks down into all the different colors of the rainbow. The different colors of the rainbow are you and I. We all and all the different things of this world represent the different manifestations of that divine unity. When we live in this world and we look at each thing and we say, you're red, I'm blue, and she's green, we can never really get along because we're all different. We all represent different vibrations, different energies. But when we recognize that we all come from the same white light, and even though it looks like you're red and you're green and I'm blue, the reality is we're all one. We all come from the same source. So this world is both a blessing and a curse. When you look at the colors of a rainbow as an end into itself, then you get misguided and 
confused and you see the world as a world of duality and multiplicity. But when we recognize that really the root is oneness and that we have to take the colors of the rainbow and come together, not by dissolving. What happens if you take all the colors and you mix them together? See, in the world of spirituality, in the world of light, what happens if you put all colors together? You get white light. White light is made up of all the different frequencies of color. But in the world of physicality, if you take all the colors of paint and you mix them together, what do you get? You guys did this as kids. Everyone knows. You mix them to all the colors together, you get like a disgusting brownish-black color. Because in the world of physicality, we're not supposed to mix. We're supposed to harmonize. We're not supposed to be a melting pot. We're supposed to be a salad bowl, a mosaic. We're supposed to continue to utilize my identity and my boundaries and my borders and my unique talents while harmonizing with your identity and your, your talents. We're not supposed to melt together and dissolve our sense of self, right? Like John Lennon's vision of oneness. Imagine no borders, no boundaries, no religions. That's a world of depressing communist architecture. The reality is that there's beauty in the differences. We have to embrace the beauty, but we all have to work together for one vision of one world living in unity and harmony. That's the Jewish vision. That's the Messianic era. It's not everyone's the same. Everyone's different, but we're all working together as one. So the rainbow is both a blessing and a curse. How do we get a rainbow? What causes a rainbow? The light of the sun, which represents fire, is refracted through droplets of water in the clouds. And that leads to a rainbow. Rainbow represents the coming together of the kindness and the strength, the chesed and the gavor, the fire and the water coming together in perfect balance. That's the message that Hashem is telling Noah is we have to have a balance of chesed and gavor. It's a beautiful symbol. It's a beautiful symbol, but it's also a curse if it's misunderstood and misrepresented. So that, my friends, is the message for this week. And we should all be blessed to see the rainbow at the end of the storm to always see the goodness in the differences and in the challenges of our life. Thank you guys so much for listening. I look forward to seeing you again next week.